structures are not serving us well. We need to creatively destroy the ships that brought us here and move into the land of the future with better tools. Tools that keep us safer and healthier, that create more wealth for more people, that foster more intimate and rewarding relationships. We need to leave behind what is not working. We need a modern revolution. We invite here, they are thinking differently, and we'll tell you where you can learn all about them later, after you have listened to them closely. For now, we don't want to impress you with what they have done, we want to impress you with what they have to say. The Modern Revolution will be podcasted. Okay, welcome to the Modern Revolution, and here we talk with guests who are multifaceted and affecting the world in many positive ways, not just for themselves, but for all of us. And in our podcast, we don't beat you over the head with their resume, and we don't imply that you have to believe everything they say because of their past experiences. We're looking to have you listen closely to them. Uh, we're inviting our guests to speak about their experiences and intentions first, and then if their ideas resonate with you, you can learn more about them and the work that they do on our show notes at themodernrevolution.com. And today's guest is modern revolutionary Oren Molovinsky. And uh, Oren, look, I know you're a multidimensional person and you've, uh, you've done a lot of different things in your career and it's been a lot of fun for me to kind of get a sense of the breadth of, um, of the things that you've done. And, and I'm, I admire uh, frankly, the work that you've done, and I'm impressed. Um, so I'm going to ask you a little bit of a difficult thing. If, if, I, if you're going to distill your mission in the world in sort of simple terms, and I don't mean simple in that it's not complicated what you're doing, but maybe easy to understand as best you can, how would you wrap your work up in a, in a phrase or a sentence? Uh, you know, I guess, uh, well, thanks for having me on I'm, I'm excited to talk to you about this, but as far as how I would wrap it up, as far as, you know, the current stage of my life and career, um, it's to uh, grow the market and opportunities for small family farms and ranches by creating uh, a market through restaurants and, and, and retail so that those farmers and ranchers who are doing so much for our our soil and our environment have have a place to sell their their products. Yeah, there, there's so much in um, you know what you just said, and uh, and because I think you and I have similar influences along these lines, and have had a similar diet of information that we've consumed. Like what you just said, um, you know, is like crystal clear to me because I have some. Uh, complementary and similar, I think, aspirations in the world. Um, so let's let's talk about what you just said, and, and maybe we can amplify that a little bit by, like, what what problem are you addressing in the world? What problem are you trying to solve in the world? Well, you know, the problem for me is as a restaurateur. I'm I'm a I've been in the restaurant business my entire adult life and even before then as a teenager, like many of us were. But, uh, you know, I learned 
through restaurant management how to purchase uh, irresponsibly early on. Mm -hmm. And I didn't even know I was being irresponsible because you just get, you know, pushed onto this path as you work for different restaurants or hotels or whatever it is. Just like as, uh, you know, me, I grew up in the, uh, you know, I really came of age in the 80s and and, you know, grocery stores were already very prolific. So that's how we learned how to shop as opposed right. to my grandparents who learned how to shop uh, in a much different way than we did. And they knew where right. their food came from. So I, I learned, uh, I, I finally was, was, you know, thanks to some great people along the way, uh, really over the last 12, 13 years who woke, you know, I, I awoke to this understanding that, you know, I'm buying in such huge quantities, and what am I really doing? What what am I impacting? And I and when I really, it didn't take long. It took about a couple weeks of visiting yeah. a few farms, and all of a sudden I was like, what What am I doing here? I, I right. I've got I, I've got this whole thing backwards, and that's when you know I went on this path of of really starting to understand how to source food responsibly um, while making it sustainable, not just from a, an environmental standpoint, but also from a financial standpoint. And, and been trying to build a model ever since that I can and other restaurateurs could, can follow to um, make a positive impact in their communities. So, I mean, that's, I mean, one of the things when you're, you're describing uh, those set of experiences that that reshaped um, how you thought about sourcing food and how restaurant tours interact with the providers of the raw material, so to speak, that you know that end up transformed through the artistry of the restaurant into you know a product. You, in my opinion, listening to that, you have to have. My opinion is that you'd have to have enough maturity and success to create distance from the tyranny of the urgent, so to speak. Like we all need jobs and, or most of us need jobs. And in the context of a job, you're generally beholden to somebody else's perspective, unless you're super lucky and they're asking your perspective to, to be the guiding principle. Um, so it would seem to me that it couldn't have happened at the beginning of your career. I mean, because, you have to be good at implementing somebody else's vision first in, in some senses before you come to your own. So, I mean, something that I'm always curious about and what I want to ask you is that did this change happen as an epiphany or did it happen incrementally as you developed yourself as a restaurateur and a chef and somebody involved in this, uh, this economy of buying food and sourcing food to, to restaurants. I mean, how did you come to it? Well, a little of both, Pete. Uh, it, it did happen gradually in that, um, you know, you have to have a certain skill set. So, you know, over the years, I had, I had operated many different styles of restaurants with some were chef-driven, some were not. Um, some were just family recipes that were passed down over time. So I learned a lot of different styles of cooking and cuisine. And, you know, mm -hmm. I'm not a chef by education, but 
I grew up in the kitchen, so to speak, and, you know, at home, but also in the workplace. I, my first seven, eight years in the restaurant business were working in kitchens, watching mm-hmm. great cooks and great chefs. So I, I understood how to cook with every part of the animal and lots of different types of vegetables and fruits. I, I knew that part. Once you understand the formula for cooking and preparing dishes at a restaurant or catering level, then, then it's just really going back to the ingredients. So, we, you know, as I got into more fine dining restaurants, uh, I, I, you know, we started sourcing more high-quality proteins and vegetables. So we were looking for the best. But right. we still weren't purchasing directly from the source. We were just buying from better vendors and better distributors who, who uh, had a niche in, in high-quality products. And a lot of times they were coming from Europe uh, and overseas. Uh, wow. then, then we said, okay, uh, th- this is where it went from gradual to immediate. Uh, you know, I had somebody from the Department of Agriculture in Virginia. At the time, I was operating restaurants in Washington, D.C., and um, they just came up to me at a at a restaurant association event and said, hey, look, we, we'd love for more restaurateurs to be buying from farmers in the Shenandoah Valley of Virginia. Uh, yeah. Would you be interested in coming with us on a farm tour? And we would help you guide through any potential purchases. So I did it, and I, I went along with a few of their organic certifiers, and, and it was a big group. And, I, you know, we're, we're walking through this beautiful pasture with cattle roaming everywhere, yeah, eating right. grass. And, and the farmer, you know, I'm talking to the farmer, and my chefs are there, and, we're, and, and we said, okay, well, how much, how much would you sell us, for instance, you know, New York strips for ribeyes? And he goes, guys, I'm a farmer. You buy the whole animal for me, and you figure out what to do with it. And right, right. that's Pete. That's how quick it took. I remember the day, and I remember the conversation. Wow. And instantly, I said to myself and to my chefs, and they all, we all agreed right there. That's our job, not his job. His job is to raise a great animal, to take care of it, nurture it, and give it the crops and grass it needs, and the and the to to sustain itself for sometimes up to five years. Uh, yeah, right. It's our job to turn that into great food, not his. And what the system had turned, and we realized immediately that the system had gotten in between the cook and the farmer, and for yeah. decades now had basically eroded that relationship to the point where we didn't even understand what the farmer needs. And in turn, the farmer doesn't really know what the restaurateur goes through and needs. So we that's how the program started initially, and that's how my I started with it, and I never right. looked back. It's always yeah. been now, how do I utilize this whole animal? Yeah, there, boy, there's so much in what you just said that, um, you know, both, you know, resonates with me, excites me, is, um, you know, uh, and I, I've got to be careful because it would be easy to turn this into, you know, a five-hour conversation. Um, and every time I talk to you, I'm like, oh, you have other things to do other than talk to me. And I, and I have like um, some really direct follow-up questions I want to ask, but I, I do want to comment, like, I'm not sure that everybody, uh, I, one of the things you described was an aesthetic, like the aesthetic of a small farm that's growing, you know, particular things and, and maybe not a single thing, but uh, there's a beauty to, I think, that, that, um, 
is invisible to a lot of people because, you know, we're going to talk a little bit about some status quo issues in a second, but um, I'm, I'm hopeful that the culture won't lose these beautiful places because I think uh, in, in ways they can be nourishing as physical places and not just as functional places. And um, that's, that's a personal, I think, bias I have. But I think what you described as this beautiful pasture is very different than, than something that's running purely um, creating protein for profit, so to speak. I mean, there, you know, if you're at a factory, that's a really different um, experience than, you're, than when you're on somebody's, uh, you know, something that they're passionately um, connected to. And, I, and I, I guess when I say it's also, you know, invisible that I'm not sure that um, the culture, and, I, and, I, and I'm not trying to pretend that those places aren't places of extremely hard work and that, that you know, I have some idyllic sense of it that they're not without their own problems. But I do think those growing environments, growing of animals and growing of foods are, are special physical places that we would be in danger of losing if it lost out to, you know, what's really um, factories. And, and so, you know, uh, what, what my next question is relates to what do you consider to be the strongest forces supporting the status quo of how people are receiving their food via restaurants and, and frankly, otherwise, in my opinion. Um, and then in the way that you're, the problems that you're looking to solve, the, the particular problem of, of sourcing food to people via, via restaurants and connecting directly with the growers, I think you're challenging some assumptions in, in, in people and, and fellow peer business people. So could you talk about those two things? I mean, I'm curious about what you think are the strongest forces that support the current status quo, and then, you know, what your challenge is not just to a system, but also to a set of beliefs. So the assumptions that underline those beliefs, I'm curious if you could describe those too. Yeah, sure. Well, again, much of it goes to an association by uh, restaurateurs and chefs that if I want to be able to make a profit and charge a reasonable price to my guests, then I need to buy the cheapest product possible. And I really need to drill down and have very little waste. Um, so I, I no longer become a cook and I turn my restaurant into more of an assembly line. So if I want to yeah. serve a really nice steak, for instance, I just order steak from the large distributor. I go online and I place my order and voila, the next day, you know, all these steaks show up, cut to the, my exact specifications, um, you know, sealed in plastic, the whole deal. Well, you know, that's the world that our chefs have grown up in that, you know, have graduated culinary school after the 80s, basically. Um, and even before then, you know, it basically an industrial system feeding our restaurants. And it's just sometimes it's dressed up to look like a better product, but it's really all the same product. You know, we talk about prime versus choice beef and things like that, right. that chefs get caught up with. But, you know, I'm not trying to disparage chefs as a group, um, but it's just how they've been taught, unfortunately, in the last couple of decades is, you know, if you want to put it on a menu, you could put it on the menu. Just put whatever you want on a menu. You can get it. So 
it's just like at our grocery stores. You know, if I want to serve, you know, a tomato in the dead of winter, um, you know, on the East Coast, I can get a tomato. Why? Because it's shipped from somewhere where it's not cold at the time. So, yeah, right, you know, right. The, the distributor has fed us this basically this illusion that we can get whatever food we want and therefore the chef creates the menu or the restaurateur around what they want to serve to the guests versus what is available to them and how do we make this this fruit vegetable meat product that is now naturally available in our area how do we make that shine you know, we, we kind of flip the whole model around and say, wait, let us be creative. Let's yeah. not let, – let us, you know, promote our, our region's bounty to our guests and let us be the educators to let people know, here's how you would cook with this particular item that maybe you wouldn't be used to cooking with, um, but, but this is what's available this time of the year, and we can make this taste just as good as what you would have otherwise – purchase but restaurateurs are scared there's a fear that they will lose business if they don't serve you know a tomato on a salad 365 days a year um, it's right. amazing what if you explain to the customer to the guest what it is that you're trying to do in a simple way they will not only understand but they will reward you for that and 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 show you an appreciation that maybe otherwise you were looked at as a commodity and now, wow, this place is special because I learned something from them, and also I'm eating something somewhat special here. Yeah, so, I mean, when I, when I try to paraphrase to myself what I hear in, in your answers to those questions, I mean, there's a status quo that has narrowed the field of vision to, uh, like, a salad is iceberg lettuce or a certain amount of greens and tomatoes and it has a, a, a really narrow definition. And so there's a status quo of steak is New York strip or, you know, a filet mignon. When uh, people may, um, and the assumptions behind that, I think, are, well, these are the right things to eat. This is the most delicious food that I can get. And, you know, what, what interests me about um, what you're doing and, and there are, throughout the world, I think there are other people who are interested in this very idea, which is to broaden the field of vision, in my opinion, and say, you know what, a salad, a dinner, um, there are many, many different ways for me to bring you an exquisite experience. And um, part of what you're employing me by virtue of coming to my restaurant or my marketplace even, is to give me a chance to respect you enough that you're willing to be educated. Uh, I think the fear that I hear you describe is that it's predictable right now. Like if you put certain things on the menu, they're on the menu at other places. And so it's easy to talk about the market um, for those items. Whereas what I hear in what you're doing is uh, using your skills to broaden people's experiences, which in my mind is like a great blessing because then you know, <laughs> you're bringing to the community things that it doesn't even know that it wants. I mean, is that a fair par par paraphrase? I mean, is that well, my hearing? Yes. No, that's correct. We are we are doing that, but we're also, you know, I look at, you know, my my specific trade as, you know, being a restaurateur is more than just being able to manage a 
restaurant like a like it's a small factory where everybody has their role you know right. that's what i did for the better part of my career um and i got pretty, you know i i achieved a lot of success just being a good technical restaurateur but then right. you, you know as you mature like you like you alluded to before when you mature and you develop a skill set and certain successes then you look to you know, become more creative and how, how you know, you, you try to do more with your skill uh, because it's just you're challenging yourself in, in your mm -hmm. career. And this is where it led me is to say, okay, how can I now flip the table? Now, how can I engineer a menu, not necessarily for what I think the customer wants. Let me engineer a menu looking at what the farmer needs. Yeah. Us right. to do and then let me make it so palatable and intriguing for the guest that it becomes you know I hate to use a cliche a win-win you know the guest yeah right the, right the guest gets a uh, a wonderful experience that's refreshing and new and different um, and the farmer is able to farm the farmer doesn't need us to be a salesperson the farmer is able to do what they do best. So to me, you're you're allowing craft craftsmen and craftswomen to to do what. The, so you you create a better product. It's just logical right. to me. It makes so much sense. And then you have this better product because the farmer is farming and the cook is cooking. And right. And and now you don't have to do so much. You don't have to season it as much. You don't have to add fancy sauces um, to hide the lack of flavor or wrong type of flavor because the farmer wasn't doing their job right. So you've just created just a much better uh, tasting dish. And at the end of the day, Pete, for everything I do, you know, I have a mission of improving the soil and through the soil, the environment in our, in our region and in our community. But really, uh, as a restaurateur, I want to have great tasting food and consistently great tasting and to me the best way to achieve that is to have great farmers growing our food who care about their soil and who love their animals with such intensity that they care for them so much that you can literally taste it in the in the final product yeah i mean i the there's a lot of people that come to mind that um that are saying similar things and, and like Dan Barber is a mutual favorite of ours. And when you talk about um, expanding someone's perspective, I mean, in a really minute example, but I think is telling is you had a customer you were mentioning to me that something as simple as they only wanted white meat chicken and then you gave them a chance to sample something outside of what they knew. And then all of a sudden they recognize that, oh, I actually am a fan of dark meat chicken and you know uh that was it was interesting to me because it was like didn't take much um it just they just needed the opportunity to broaden their um assumptions and then all of a sudden their life is is different and i also feel strongly that what you're doing is not just about flavor and you know and, and farming and soil and the environment but uh, about people's health because it's my opinion that the most flavorful food is a bloom of the most nutritious food. And so as you have um, these amazing 
dishes that you're making, uh, as sumptuous as they may be, my opinion is that they also carry with it lots of health benefits that, uh, that are invisible to the guests because they're focused on the flavor but are present because the ingredients that you're bringing to them are absent certain things, absent, you know, perhaps Roundup and perhaps, you know, all kinds of things that I think are disrupting the health of the body and instead imbued with all the, uh, the true elements of the plant and the animal. And so, I mean, health is something that is a keen focus of, of mine in the community and the world. Um, what, you know, what about this problem? What, why do people see this as less of a serious problem than it in fact is? Like, this is something that you're spending an extraordinary amount of energy on, this problem that you're trying to solve. When you look out in the world and not everybody is pointed in the same direction, why don't other people see it as serious as it in fact is? Well, I think, um, you know, you mentioned a great point about health. And, and admittedly, when I first embarked on this, uh, you know, kind of just walked into it, uh, it wasn't about healthy eating initially for me. It was about, it was more about, you know, creating relationships with, with farmers and having this wonderful product on the table that, you know, was, was just, you know, superior to anything else we could get. So that was admittedly one of our first goals or my first goals. But what I learned over time um, is that this is, um, you know, when you embark on this type of program, you're going to have a more nourishing and nutritious product. Uh, it, it's right. just, it's just, it's just inevitable. It, it's, it's actually like, like, you know, to add to the cliche, a win, 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 you know, and, and right, wins right, right. piling yeah. up. So <laughs> the, the, uh, the, the, we have a, a, a great Michael Pollan quote on our, on our wall and a guest took a picture of it who was eating a breakfast burrito of all things the other day. And he took a right. picture of it and posted on his Facebook page. And it said, you, and it says, you are what you eat, eats. And right, right. That yeah, is, yeah. So it resonates. It's, it's very prominent in our restaurant and, and it resonates with so many people and they, and it's like a, something clicks in their mind. And I can't tell you how many guests over the years since I've been uh, doing farm to table programs have said, uh, you know, I just feel better eating this food. Now that could yeah. always be a mindset, but I really believe that when you're serving the right types of foods that came from farms and ranches that raised their animals the right way on proper, on the right type of natural diets, that that food is just going to settle better with you. And, you know, when you don't add all these heavy sauces and tons of seasoning to something just to make it palatable, that's going to help, you know, that's going to help digest. And, and when you build a menu, it should, it should help with digestion. Just like, you know, the, if you study food over time, you know, salads are served at certain points of the meal in order to improve digestion and aperitifs are meant to improve digestion. Same with wine, but you know, our foods that we prepare now are very digestible. And I think that's the first part. And then, you know, yes, it is going to be more nutritious. There's a reason why many, uh, uh, you know, uh, patients who are in for heart problems uh, are asked by their physician or whomever to eat grass-raised beef 
because it's yeah, clearly right. a much better alternative. That's just a very basic thing, but um, yes, it is much more nutritious. And, um, you know, I think that's a big part now. Uh, to me, I've recognized that as a main driver of what we're doing. Well, you know, it's pure economics. If our guests are healthier, can get around easier, live longer, well, they'll keep coming in for more food. <laughs> yeah, right, right. And I, I mean, <laughs> I think with the lawsuit recently of, against Monsanto of having linked, you know, effectively Roundup with cancer, um, the conversation may move uh, from people looking at that point of view about the, the healthiest food, the, the food that's raised with the um, environment in mind being the healthiest food as opposed to like what's the most expeditious way to get the least expensive food on the, on the table. Uh, the, the lawsuit against Monsanto may crystallize that for people that don't naturally have that point of view, or at least I hope it does. Um, I feel really strongly that the health of the, 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 the nation, and I don't think I'm any genius for saying this, I mean, has been declining for a long time, probably since 1980 in a real, measured way, given that we've tripled obesity since then, and we're spending $322 billion a year on diabetes. I, uh, clearly, there are things broken because those are mm-hmm. dynamics that ha- didn't exist before. Um, 19, well, I just recently... Uh, oh, I'm sorry. Not at all. Not at all. Go ahead. I, I recently finished reading uh, Rachel Carson's Silent Spring. Uh, right. She may as well have written it five years ago, and this is a yeah. book that's been you know, that influenced President Kennedy to, to initiate the, FD, the uh, EPA, I'm sorry. And, and you know, it, it's, it's, it's sickening what was happening then. And just to think that after that pivotal, pivotal book that made such a huge impact on society, uh, you know, highlighting the chemicals used that were just, you know, I mean, literally killing children and adults, all over the country, uh, the, uh, that we're still doing it today. And yes, I think, you know, at the end of the day, you have to know who's, who, who, where your food comes from. Uh, and right. the only way to really know that in, in our, the way our society is kind of built up today is certainly not to go to your grocery store because unless it's a very special local community store where they know where everything comes from. But, but, you know, most of the big box stores are not going to know where the food really comes from, but um, you know, going to a farmer's market um, or going right to a farm. um, And, you know, I think we're blessed here where we live, where you can go to a farm. You know, I do it all the time. You could buy right from the farmer. And, you know, here's a transaction where you're shaking, you're literally shaking your farmer's hand, you're seeing their family, and you're, you're building a, a trusting relationship with the person who's, you know, who's feeding you. Just like you know your doctor, you should know who's making your food, who's producing your food. And if you don't, it's not that hard to do in most communities these days. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm, I'm really interested in this juncture in our probably global society, but certainly our, our national society, and for you and I, our local community, this opportunity to shift people's um, notion of, well, how, how do I put my food on the, on the table? I think 
when we talk about status quo, when your grandfather was shopping at, you know, the farms and going in perhaps farmers markets and having a relationship with those people that, uh, that grow things. And then as it transitioned to, you know, business required scale. I mean, it's, you can't, <laughs> it, it's not, uh, it, I don't think it was a malicious act to divorce people from the source of their food. I think it was, you know, the tyranny of needing to to make the business thrive. And uh, those things, yeah, profit is not a bad idea. And when we certainly are not asking farmers to engage in this in a way that uh, makes their life a subsistence living. And so, however, I also think that there's um, – Sometimes I think people misunderstand the value, the economic value of taking out that middleman and getting better food for, you know, at least equal prices and maybe lower prices. I mean, I, I'm not sure that everybody um, yet even realizes that. That's part of the reason why I think having these conversations and this conversation specifically is so important um, to get people to take a look what's around you. <laughs> I'm not sure. And, do, and don't be afraid. Don't be afraid to cook. Um, you know, I'm a restaurateur. Sure. I'd love it if people would decide to eat out every night from a, from an economic standpoint, but that's not, that's really short sighted of me. Um, for me, for folks to be able to cook at home, um, you know, or at least to have somebody that comes to the house that can prepare meals if, 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 you just don't have the time or the inclination to do it. Um, but that allows you to now go and source your food from uh, somebody you can trust, somebody you can, you know, look in the eyes and say, you know, I'm putting my family's health in your hands. And, and it's a way for you to, you know, keep your family out of the doctor's office, quite frankly. And, you know, the, the, the benefit to it is you can eat, much less expensively with much uh, better ingredients from local farmers and ranchers who, who farm right. It's, it's, it's all a matter of just learning how to cook with the food. The problem is, is, is if you don't understand how to cook it, then, then yeah, sometimes you might buy all this meat, for instance, that you normally wouldn't buy like a chuck roast or a round cut that, and you might, prepare it the way you're typically prepare beef and you ruin it. It doesn't taste good and your family doesn't enjoy it. So, so that would not be a good, you know, economic use of the animal, but when you learn how to cook or you, you know, that, then you get to utilize these part, these cuts that are much less expensive than what you probably normally would purchase. And you could get a lot of nourishment and some wonderful meals out of this that, um, you know, our ancestors cooked with all this stuff, but, you know, we've just grown away from it because the uh, industrial system has allowed us to. Um, yeah, one, I, one, I, yeah. yeah, I'm sorry, go sorry. ahead. Pete. No, no not, not at all. I didn't mean to interrupt you. Other than to amplify, I feel like much of the, pro the health problems in the nation, I mean, are what's killing us are primarily diseases of lifestyle, not infectious diseases. And so diabetes and cancer and heart disease being, you know, the accumulation of certain lifestyles over time being, you know, what kills us rather than dysentery or something that's external coming in and attacking us. And, um, you know, I do nutritional counseling and uh, as we talk to people, I feel like much of uh, 
people's complaints about lethargy, wanting to lose weight, brain fog, inability to sleep, you know, things that they're going and getting medications for, uh, you know, the primary prescription should be to cook your own food. In some ways, I think you, you may have answered my next question, but I'll give you a chance to um, take it in a different direction if you want. Because, I'm, I, you know, as people hear this, uh, it may be overwhelming or it may be totally aligned with what they already think. But let's say for the person who is hearing these ideas and like, well, what would be a good place to start? Like, what, what would I do? What would your advice be to that person about creating a small personal change that would bring them into alignment with, you know, what you're talking about here? Well, so I would say that the first and easiest move for most consumers is to uh, at least shop once a month at a farmer's market. Um, right. So even if you, let's say you're, you're accustomed to grilling steaks and burgers at home, and that's, that's kind of what your family likes and what you've become accustomed to, well, at least go once a month and buy your steaks and burgers from directly from the rancher or farmer at the farmer's market. Um, and that mm -hmm. way um, you can, you can at least know that you're getting a more nourishing product. Now it is going to be in most cases more expensive than what you would go buy, you know, pound for pound in a grocery store in a big box, you know, store that sells food. Um, but you don't have to buy as much. And I would just encourage you then while you're at that farmer's market is plan your, plan your purchase out so that you're eating only about 25% meat on your plate that night with your family or friends. And the other 75% might be a combination of starches, legumes, and vegetables. And, you know, easy, easy things to do would be to, you know, to have some beans and, some potato or potatoes and and get some carrots and veggies to cook and that beef though you'll notice the difference and and whether yeah, it's beef right. or chicken or pork but but just use less of it so that your overall budget is the same you're you're probably putting a little bit more food from a weight standpoint on the plate you're getting maybe around the same calories as if you had a much larger cut of beef or pork um, but you've now made a conscious decision to balance that plate out. And you've also supported some farmers at the farmer's market. You've gotten to know them. And you're still eating things you love to eat. You're just maybe proportionately changed a little bit. And then just take it gradually from there. And, you know, if you can go online and, and watch a YouTube video on how to prepare a piece of chuck roast or a round cut, um, you know, a slow cooker is probably the easiest way. And you can now start creating some dishes that don't take you any more time. You can eat less meat and add more of those other vegetables to your diet. And I think that's probably the best way to start um, is yeah. not to jump in, you know, you know, neck deep and try to make this complete change in how you purchase because, you know, that, that seldomly works well initially. <laughs> So. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I mean, you and I, obviously, we, you know, like Dan Barber in his third plate book and Michael Pollan's book and, you know, Michael Pollan's quote that you and I both like. And if you, you know, I spent thousands of dollars to become certified as a, as a health coach. And at the end of really the program, uh, Michael Pollan's uh, statement said, you know what, if you want to know how to eat, uh, 
eat whole foods, um, mostly plants, and not too much. <laughs> yeah. And in many ways, you know, you, you can summarize, I think, uh, you know, you don't need a, a prescription for your diet that goes beyond much of that. And I, you know, I'm in an industry that talks about lots of uh, shortcuts and easy, uh, you know, eat this superfood or do that, which, you know, Michael Pollan's uh, three statements, I think, is really all you, all you need. I think those right. are, those are you know, great places to start. And I think if we did, people would be surprised at, like, the ripple of benefits that come from, um, from, from cooking. And a once-a-month kind of adventure, I think the more people uh, learn about what's in their community, the more they're going to be so pleasantly surprised with what's, uh, what's available there. And, you know, we're going to kind of come to the, to the last, to the conclusion of, our interview, and I want to talk maybe about you specifically in a, and I'm looking for an accomplishment in your past or in your present um, that would be an emblem of what you're trying to accomplish. So I'd like for you to describe like, hey, I did this thing and I'm really proud of it and uh, give people a sense of, um, of something you've done in the world that aligns with what we talked about in the beginning. Uh, that you'd want people to think of when they think of you specifically. Well, um, you know, it's it's a, it, it's a personal accomplishment to me, but it really has to do with a community that I worked with. And um, this is again back from my days in the Washington D.C. area. Um, I moved to Arizona in 2011. Um, but I, when I started our farm to table program, one of the first grass raised uh, ranching operators I, I was came across and was able to work with was in Grayson County, Virginia. And it was a group of um, very um, like-minded farmers and ranchers who were, who were tired of the status quo and wanted to bypass the, you know, industrial system, the industrial food system and, and work directly with restaurateurs and grocers and, and et cetera. And, um, you know, so at the time, um, it was called, you know, basically grace and natural beef. Um, well, these, this group of farmers and ranchers, there were probably about five, five of them at the time, um, were really just, they, they had no real organizational structure. They were just kind of going for it. Today, um, you know, Grayson County is not a very affluent county. It's very rural um, there, there was a lot of unemployment in Grayson County. Um, today, fast forward probably about, you know, 10, 11 years, they have probably 25 ranchers and farmers in their program. Uh, they're selling, um, you know, those all-natural grass-raised beef sticks. They're even on Amazon now. I found them. Wow, um, it's wow. a wonderful product. And, and uh, they've, they've rebranded for that particular product, but, uh, you know, but the whole community, their, the Grayson County and their community has just flourished. Um, and yeah. they, they're not really part of uh, the greater economy of the Washington, D.C. area. They're about six hours away from Washington, D.C. So they're very isolated from what happens in that very busy, you know, uh, wealthy community. Uh, 
they their that community is growing because of this you know this this idea of raising cattle the right way naturally benefiting their environment and 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 their community benefits in so many ways and they are flourishing and i speak with the ranchers there and the folks that i originally worked with and they're doing great i mean they're they're ha- and so that's a huge accomplishment i think i i love buying their um, beef sticks on Amazon and my, yeah, my kids right, and I right. eat them, you know, it's like, but, but I remember we, we, we really went through a lot to even get them off the ground. And, uh, and, you know, that, that's probably my greatest accomplishment, you know, so far, I, I would say from a professional standpoint, you know, right. uh, excluding my family and, uh, sure. oh, you know, yeah, all sure, of that. Right. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, that, yeah, that goes without saying, yeah, of course, of course. And I, um, It'll be a curious thing, I think, in the next, I don't know quite what the timing will be, but I feel like there's some momentum uh, out there in the community for what you're talking about and in alignment with other perspectives that are, you know, agreeing with, with yours. Um, and so so much good will come for it. I When you're talking, I mean, one of the things that uh, occurs to me is, it could have a profound effect nationally on the economy of creating a, a whole, or maybe not creating is, is the way to describe it, but revitalizing a segment of our society from an economic perspective that uh, has been in decline for, you know, probably 45 years now. Mm-hmm. Um, that I think would, would we talk about all these wins, I mean, it, it goes out, you know, uh, very far by the time we look at um, all the people that, could it be advantaged by it? And I think there's a whole segment of people who, uh, given the choice, might love to, to work in those environments where they're working with animals and, and plants um, without it being something that's a factory setting that would pay a living wage, but um, something that also isn't a subsistence kind of passion project where that's a real route to prosperity. Uh, you know, I'm hoping that that's, that's in our near future. Um, you know, there's there's dog rescues. There's there's all kinds of rescues. We need more land rescue. Or we yeah. rescue some land from development. And if there's a market for young, you know, energetic people to to grow food or livestock on that land in in our communities, suburban communities, urban communities, then you not only turn that land more into more of a productive for our community but you know you continue with with you know being able to provide nourishing food you know that you can go pick up yourself and not have to trust a middleman to do for you yeah i hadn't thought of that term i love that idea of you know like a, re- a land re- rescue and we in terms of uh, challenging assumptions i mean we know you and i and Chandler, Arizona, live in a community that always makes sure that as a new community is developed, it's developed, you know, with a school in mind to serve, you know, that community and, and, and as it should, you know, I mean, that's what, that's a great thing. But if communities then thought about what is the amount of land that's needed that perhaps needs to be zoned agricultural, um, my opinion is that agriculture done properly doesn't produce like a bad smell and in, in an undesirable location to be near that, but in fact would produce these, you know, oasises of, of a, you know, beautiful, um, of beautiful physical structures and 
you know, kind of bucolic settings. I just think, um, I think it would benefit all of us. That's and right. You and, and you're right that some people's perception of, of agriculture is unfortunately um, mis, misled. You know, it, it, it's been misled because of industri- them being in the backyard of industrial agriculture. You know, I can say as much as I'm in favor of agriculture, I couldn't wait for a dairy near my house to close down and homes to go yeah. up there. I hate to say it, you know, that it runs right, against right. me in every way, but you know, quite frankly, it was horrible. And, and, you know, and, but on the other hand, I've seen dairies done right that, you know, you wouldn't even know they were next door to you, you know? So you're right, Pete, there is a right way to do it. And the community just needs to endorse the right people to farm that land. And then, you know, you'll see a different type of farm that you can, that you'd want to take your friends and family to, to, to show off as a point of pride in your community. Yeah, that, that, yeah. And I, and I, that's what I am excited to see happen. And we have a couple of kind of small experiments in our community that's leaning towards that. And, um, and I think where that could become a desirable feature in a community, we're actually would raise, the value of the community by virtue of, you know, agriculture being done correctly um, will be, it'll be an interesting development. Instead of a golf course, maybe you want something that connects you to the healthiest food next door, uh, which changes your, you know, your outlook in life and your longevity and, and everything. I, I, um, I'm going to uh, conclude with, you know, where do you want people to follow the progress of, your work in the world and um, what we're going to put on the show notes at themodernrevolution.com, both information and links out to important places with you, but just as a way to kind of conclude things, um, you know, how do you want people to follow your good work? Well, you know, certainly, you know, what I'm doing on a very small scale, I'd love for people to come visit us at, you know, a great resource is just our restaurant's website at farmboyaz.com. I do have producer and farmer profiles as well as I try to blog and and put up, uh, you know, information about why we're doing things a certain way and a little bit of history about why we're doing it. But I, I would also say that, you know, I think it's very important for folks to read on this subject. And, um, you know, that's, I know you and I have shared some, you know, like the third plate by Dan Barber is a wonderful book really written more towards the chef. Um, but the, you know, anyone who enjoys cooking would, would appreciate that book. But, um, some, some great books out there are the omnivores dilemma, you know, a classic by Mm -hmm. Michael Pollan where, you know, that was what really reinforced for me once I started meeting these farmers, then read the book and just said, Oh my God, I, 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 you know, I'm, I'm looking at this the, the wrong way. And, and really any book by Joel Salatin, <laughs> um, yeah, one, right, that right. I, one that I find particularly fun and, and recent is called Folks, This Ain't Normal. And um, <laughs> very, very inspiring to me. He's, he's a, you know, he's, he's a self-proclaimed lunatic. So I'm not <laughs> calling him anything that he hasn't called himself, but he's, right. you know, he's, it's very, it's amazing. He speaks to the consumer um, where where Dan Barber speaks more to the to the chef yeah, and Michael Pollan speaks yeah. to everybody, but um, Joel Salatin really helps you understand 
what's really at the root of great farming and great agriculture and what it means to you as an individual and to your family from a health standpoint, um, from a nourishment standpoint, and, and, and something I believe very strongly in is passing on a better world to our children and grandchildren. And, right. you know, that's, that's a lot of, you know, I look at my kids every day and I want to be able to pass something on to them that was a lot better than what I, what I received. And, um, you know, in terms of environmental impact. So um, those books I would recommend as much or more than, you know, checking out my website. <laughs> yeah, no, that's gracious of you. And I, I mean, I appreciate your, uh, you know, your interest in, in helping people find things to consume, right? I mean, you consume new foods and new cuts of meat, and new, you know, all their, and uh, new information is a way to feed us as well. And those are resources that I uh, endorse with equal passion. And uh, so, Orrin, I'm going to take us out here in, in just a, a second. But, you know, I'm, I've become very fond of you very quickly. I really like what you're doing uh, in the world and specifically our community. I think you're going to have, uh, you've already had, I think, a big impact, but I think it's just the beginning. And perhaps we'll figure out ways to describe the way you're impacting the community to, uh, you know, a bigger audience. So that way your good work um, is amplified to people who might not be lucky enough to go to your restaurant and get to meet you and so on and so forth. Well, thank you very much, Pete. I appreciate the opportunity to, to speak with you. Today's modern revolutionary, Oren Molovinsky, is moving us forward. Like others we have talked to, he's clear-eyed about our current situation and give enough to bring his thoughts and words to the arena, let him inspire you to bring your ideas to the world too. Don't keep them locked away. The modern revolution needs us all. The show notes for this show and all our shows can be found at themodernrevolution.com. So please go there where you can check out the show notes and learn more about our guests and see some of our fun videos like Tell Big Soda to Piss Off. The Modern Revolution is a production of A Well-Run Life. In A Well-Run Life, we have an additional podcast by the same name, A Well-Run Life, and it's three minutes long. And should you be interested in some of our additional ideas, Peter Dealey, myself, I have a book called The Leadership Miracle, and it's 35 minutes, and it's on audible.com for $3.95, so you can check us out there as well. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you at the next episode. This podcast sounds a little bit better on the podcast player, CastBox. In fact, I think of it as Podcast Bliss. They've been a great supporter of ours through this podcast and our other podcast, A Well-Run Life. And so if you haven't checked out CastBox, we encourage you to do